I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to another episode of Syracast. My name is Daniel Bader, and this week I'm joined by two special guests, uh, a, a, a new co-host to the podcast, uh, Mobile Syrup staffer, uh, Patrick O'Rourke. How are you, sir? I'm quite good. How are you? I'm very well, and I'm very, very excited to welcome back to the Syrupcast uh, friend of the show and Mobile Syrup contributor, Matt Moniz. How are you, man? I'm great. How's it going over there? Well, you know, enjoying a mild winter day. It's kind of weird. But uh, it's kind of nice. Uh, for anybody not in Toronto today, it's like, what, 10 degrees out? 10 degrees. Oh, it's really? Like 11 tomorrow. 11. It's, uh, it's, it's like an April day wow. in, in early December, so mid-December. Uh, so we're, we're going to do things a little bit differently this week. Uh, we're, we're focusing on VR and the future of VR and what uh, the next five or ten years looks like from... That world, there are so many contenders in the space. Obviously, Facebook-owned Oculus is first and foremost in uh, many people's minds when they think of VR. But there's other companies with hybrid products like Microsoft's HoloLens. We have uh, HTC and and uh, Valve launching uh, the Vive next year. Uh, just got announced that uh, has a release date. We have the Samsung Gear VR Consumer Edition. It's out now, possibly the best uh, early example of what we can do with portable VR. And of course, Google's Cardboard, which has been out for a while in many shapes and forms and is easily the cheapest way to get into virtual reality for many smartphone users. So we'll get to that in a bit, but we'll start today with a bit of news. Um, Perhaps the, the biggest and, and thankfully only tech controversy of the week uh, was that Apple released a, a battery case for the iPhone 6 and 6S. And Matt's smiling there <laughs> <laughs> because uh, I think Matt has thoughts. What are your thoughts on well, this 6S battery case? Where do I begin? Um, there's lots of thoughts. Uh, first of all, obviously, it's the worst design ever, and uh, it's probably the third worst design Apple's made this year, but that's another story. Um, like, you know, it's it looks like literally the, like a case swallowed another battery, and it just doesn't look right. It's it's just terrible. Like, it's just, just not Apple, you know what I mean? So, I don't know. And there's just a lot better options, especially for the $100 price tag that they're selling it at. So, I saw this amazing photo of Han Solo frozen in carbonite, the, the silhouette of him coming out of the back of the battery case, which I thought was really apropos considering that Force Awakens opens in eight days from today. OMG, OMG. So, uh, Pat, what do you think? Are you are, are you in agreement? Do you think that this uh, is Apple's worst design ever? I mean, Apple's known for making like sleek, good-looking products, right? 
and my initial reaction to it was it, it didn't even it seemed like it was fake the fact that it just sticks out of the back like that like it didn't seem like a real Apple product I don't know why they wouldn't have at, like adopted the strategy of like what are the other charging ones like the third party ones out there there's like the Mophie how the, it just extends the uh, the length of the phone a little bit to me that makes yeah. more sense than attaching it to the back yeah and, and there's tons of them is it it's Scipio Express and it's yeah. just, they just make it a little bit bulky but everything is like you know, straight, there's no hump, and it's just one big straight back. Yeah, and I, I've listened to a lot of people's different arguments about this and how it relates to Apple's design philosophy. You know, Apple doesn't want to add any excess to their products, and they have this um, this sort of naked robotic core concept where they create a, a very simple, very flat, as thin a product as thin as possible, and then ask third-party developers or in some cases uh, their own accessories team to build platforms and ecosystems on top so we have docks for the iPhone we, we have official um, silicone and leather cases and now we have this silicone battery case and a lot of people are taking offense to this hump but the alternative was to make it a uniform essential like literally a, like a, a humpback like make it as as wide as, as possible for a battery to fit in the entire space, but when you see a Mophie or a um, an Incipio, not that not like the entire back isn't the battery, right? There's still empty space. So Apple just figured minimize the empty space and only expose the electronics when they need to. The other thing that sort of surprised me about it too is why is this something that that Apple's releasing? In a way, to me, it almost seems like they're kind of like admitting that the iPhone sometimes suffers from battery issues? Yeah, I, I don't think it's an implicit acknowledgement that the iPhone 6 has bad uh, battery, but I do think that what they're doing is they've heard a lot of criticism that the iPhone 6 Plus and the 6S Plus are that much better in, in terms of battery life, mm -hmm. and they're trying to accommodate people who chose the lower, uh, the, the smaller phones um, and they want to give them the opportunity to, you know, to charge it when they need to, and then go back to, you know, the smaller form factor when they don't. And I've heard both sides, right? Like I know a lot of people whose phones live in a Mophie. They don't even consider not having the Mophie on. They, it's permanently in there, like, like a battery case, yeah, or so like, like a, a regular case. Well, that makes sense. Like when I first had the iPhone 6s, I literally returned it after two weeks because the battery is so terrible. So I was like, you know what, we get the 6S Plus. But, <clears throat> but for people who want that small form factor, they're obviously going to need that Mophie case or the new Apple case. But Matt, like you, you're used to these big Android phones uh, with 3,200, 3,500 milliamp hour batteries. Um, and I, I mean, remember a couple of years ago when Android phones were much smaller and they didn't provide that all-day battery life. And the one way that OEMs you know, they, they uh, accommodated these power users was to make their phones bigger. I mean, much of the big screen phenomenon came as a side effect for wanting bigger batteries in their phones. And I mean, there's an argument to be made that, you know, one came from the other, but I think a lot of, a lot of the Android OEMs realize that if you make a phone bigger, even if it's flat and thin, it can accommodate a much bigger battery. Yeah, I know, for sure. But the thing is, even the bigger Android phones today, the battery life is still not that great. And I think that's still an issue. And 
there's obviously there's a huge accessory market built around that. Um, I just found the 6S Plus battery life to be really good, at least compared to all the other Android phones I've tested this year, which is surprising considering the battery size in the 6S Plus, but that obviously preaches to Apple's optimizations. Right, and you know, there's, um, I, I think what's what's really interesting is that the battery in the 6S Plus isn't that much bigger. I mean, it's it's about 35% bigger yeah. than the 6S. Mm-hmm. But when you're talking about the difference between charging it at 7 p.m. and charging it at what would be after your bedtime, a lot of people just say, <clears throat> well, I'm going to charge my phone at the end of the day anyway. So as long as it makes it from the time I get up in the morning until the time I go to sleep, I don't really care how much longer my phone lasts, right? There's this weird, um, there's a small niche market that wants a phone that will last two full days, right? So that you don't have to charge it at night, or at least don't have to charge it every night. But then most phones live in that midsection where if you were awake for, you know, a full 18 or, you know, 22 hours, 24 hours, then the phone would last but anything beyond that, it would die. So if you use it overnight, it may die at 8 in the morning or 9 in the morning. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I don't know. I suffer from battery anxiety. Like, I know if, if I, my phone doesn't last for, like, even though I know I'm never going to use my phone for two days straight, mentally I have to feel like that. So that's why I always opt for the bigger battery or the better battery. Even though I know what you're saying, you can technically just plug it in since I'm at home at 7 o'clock. I'm probably going to go to bed two hours later anyways. But I think there's a lot of people out there, like you said, a small niche market who don't want to feel that. When my phone yeah. drops to 30%, I just like I just look at that number and I get a little bit of anxiety knowing that I'm, I'm close to the end. <laughs> and you plug it in right away. Even if you yeah. have like, 30% left or 40% left, you're like, oh, wow, I'm going to be at work for another five hours. I better plug it in now because I'm going out afterwards, so this needs to get done. Yeah, that battery anxiety is um, really interesting because it spawned this entire third-party accessory ecosystem. You know, there's battery cases, but, I mean, Pat and I have been accumulating all of these battery chargers for our holiday gift guide, and what we've seen is basically the same product told in many different ways, right? There's thin and long. There's short and fat. I mean, it's kind of like all the shapes and sizes, but at the end of the day, it's just a... A, you know, a battery that will recharge your phone or your tablet or both with def- a bunch of different connectors. And with CES coming up in the next couple of weeks, I know a lot of our peers are trying to scramble to find the best battery charging options for their myriad devices because we're crazy and we bring like six phones with us when we go traveling. But, uh, you know, that's kind of... That's that's how we live today. I mean, everybody, you know, if you're a family of four and you have kids, most of the, you know, you you're you're gonna have a kid. Your spouse, or you're gonna have a kid. You're you're gonna have a phone. Your spouse is gonna have a phone. Your kids are gonna have phones, and they all need to be charged every day. Yeah, I know for sure. But again, like we're not normals. Like when we go to CES, like like you said, we're bringing six or seven devices with us. Most people only carry like their cell phone and, or smartphone, and that's it, right? But my question is, why didn't Apple make just a generic uh, brick? Like, why didn't they, you know, charge $99 for a batter- a really nicely designed white battery brick instead of having 
an explicitly uh, like a, a case that's explicitly designed for the iPhone 6 and 6s, which which you know much more severely limits its potential audience. Well, that's what I was gonna say. Sorry, makes, sorry, sorry. That that makes that makes a lot more sense to me because then you could use it for like a variety of different devices. But maybe that's why Apple made the case was it so that you could only use it with a very specific Apple product. See, my personal opinion, the reason why I think they made it like that is, like you just said, Daniel, they're, they're, all of them are basically the same. They look the same, and they do the same thing. By releasing something that's ridiculous, like looks like, like an anaconda swallowed a baby, you're totally differentiating yourself from everybody in the market, and you've already created, uh, like, hype. Like, look at everybody. That was, like, the biggest thing yesterday on that's Twitter. True. Everybody was talking about it, whether they loved it or hated it. Exactly. And That's what Apple does well is marketing, right? So yeah, and and it's true, you know this, and and what's interesting, Nilay Patel from The Verge wrote a, a piece on wh- why the case was designed the way it was, and he posits that Mophie's patents, its, its extensive patent portfolio, with its um, rounded back and two-piece design, prevented Apple from creating a similar oh. product. And right. whether that's true, I don't know. Apple probably, you know, acknowledges that Mophie is an important partner and didn't want to alienate the company. And Mophie's products are, they run the gamut from Android to iOS to battery bricks for any, any type of phone or tablet. But I do acknowledge that Apple was probably limited with what it could create if they did, you know, approach this from a, okay, here are the, here, here are the possible designs that we can use that don't infringe on any patents. Um, you know, what can we do? And uh, this seemed like, you know, with its top hinge that you kind of slide the phone in, um, this probably was the best option that they had without infringing any patents or, or, or you know, protections. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, yeah, I mean, it is what it is. Um... I just and that's wish exactly what it is. It's just, yeah, it, it is, is what it is. It is, what it is. Exactly. It's a battery case. <laughs> exactly. At the end of the day, it's just a battery case, and most likely you can always just take it off after your phone's charged, right? So, yeah. So we'll move on. Um, the next thing is uh, Win Mobile, and this is a very Canadian story. So Win Mobile announced today, and today's uh, Thursday, December 10th, that they nabbed uh, $425 million in financing uh, along with a five-year exclusive partnership with Nokia to fund its uh, LTE network that it plans to roll out across 2016 and, and early 2017. Uh, so, you know, I, I, we've spoken a lot about WinMobile on, on the Syrupcast. Uh, you know, Douglas and I have, have gone back and forth on the, on the virtues and, and downsides of, of having a fourth carrier that just cannot compete in terms of speed and reliability with uh, with the big three and and how that's mostly a an institutional problem um, but do you guys have much experience using wind or family members friends on, on wind yeah uh, my mom I put, I put my mom on wind because she like barely uses her phone so I figured you know what I'm gonna put on the wind network it's cheap she just needs it for the city. But I've used it, and obviously the experience is not great. Um, but for the type of stuff that she needs, it works out well. So hopefully, with the whole LTE rollout, I think it will help Wind, obviously, because they really need that extra, that extra data boost, and you know, to relieve congestion as well. Yeah, Pat, what about you? 
I have a friend who was on Win for I think probably about a year, but they uh, they kept saying that as soon as they leave the GTA and because of the coverage area the Win has, that they would just get destroyed by like overage charges. Right. So if anybody doesn't know, uh, the, the one person listening who doesn't know about Win's, uh, you know, home and away zones, the way they the way they work is. Um, Wind has networks in five cities uh, across Canada, uh, Toronto, um, Ottawa, Vancouver, Calgary, and Edmonton. And, and it's, it's a bit of a, a, a misnomer to say that they, have, um, they, they only service five cities because they actually have expanded to parts of uh, southern Ontario quite far beyond Toronto. Uh, I, I believe they have service in Kitchener-Waterloo, uh, London, um, and the Hamilton Corridor, they go all the way uh, down to the water. I mean, they have a pretty sizable network. I'm trying to surreptitiously go to their uh, coverage page. But what I do know is that in the areas that they have spectrum, they've tried to, uh, they've really tried to fill in the gaps and, and make their network a lot more reliable. Um, but what they have promised is twofold. They have a an extensive uh, partner network, and, and they've partnered with Rogers, Bell, and Telus, even though they haven't explicitly named them. And uh, what they allow you to do is put money in, in your wallet every month, uh, however much you want, and for a per megabyte fee, uh, you can roam using voice, text, or data on these partner networks. But that's expensive, as, as Pat alluded to. It's a very expensive proposition, and it really eats into the value of Wynn's service, right? If you're only spending 35 bucks a month, but you, you know, go anywhere outside of the of the network and you want to use your phone, uh, that that costs costs a lot of money. And that's that's what my friend was saying. Was basically that as long as he was home, it was awesome. Like he was paying something like 40 bucks a month for. Totally unlimited services. I don't know if they, they still offer plans like that. But he, he did a lot of work in Montreal, so he'd be traveling there every couple of weeks. And on those trips, he would end up like ramming up a huge bill, and that would sort of negate the amount of money that he was saving on the cheaper wind plan in the first place. Right. Wasn't the government trying to regulate how much they can charge for uh, domestic roaming? Yes, and that's uh, another story this week that was really interesting. Um, the CRTC passed interim domestic roaming rates that basically spell out how much the big three are, are allowed to charge their carrier partners for domestic roaming. So that means that Win Mobile, for example, when they purchase uh, access or when they purchase you know, voice, text, or, or data access from one of its partners, the CRTC says, okay, we'll, we're going to regulate how much you can charge these smaller carriers. Um, and while we don't know the specifics because of, you know, for competitive reasons, uh, the Globe and Mail had an article where they spoke to an analyst who was privy to the numbers who said that they're about what, they're 40% above markup. So that means that if Rogers, uh, if it costs Rogers, uh, you know, one cent per megabyte, this is not real, but one cent per megabyte, that's going to be, uh, you know, 1.4 cents um to and they can charge 1.4 cents essentially, but the problem with this is that the CRTC wanted the incumbents to actually 
tell them how much they spend on network access. So it's all self-proclaimed. It's not, uh, you know, it, it's not the CRTC going, okay, this is how much we've determined uh, this service will cost you. It's Rogers submitting it to the CRTC going, this is how much it costs us, and this is how much we think that you should you should regulate the domestic roaming charges. So it's not exactly uh, customer-friendly because we don't know how much those charges are. All we can do is see how much Win Mobile charges for roaming access. Right, and then we can sort of get an idea, but at the end of the day, it's like, like you said, how are we supposed to know, and it can still probably be expensive, right? Yeah, right now, Wind charges $50 a gigabyte for for roaming. Wow. So that's not cheap. No, it's not. Um, but there is good news. So we have we have Wind Mobile. They are building their LT network. They have more spectrum. They have more capital. They now have $425 million of additional financing. Um, they are certainly growing their user base, and uh, they are, unfortunately, because of that, getting a bit more expensive because they, they, they need to build up their ARPU. They need to play with the big boys. So uh, that's just kind of the cost of doing business. That's expected. I mean, even if they get a little bit more expensive, as long as they can eventually roll out and provide good service, then, I mean, it still hopefully will provide enough competition, you know, between all four, or all four carriers. Did they yeah. reveal a timeline for the LTE rollout at all yet? Well, they're saying 2016, and, and I, okay. it really, um, it depends on a bunch of factors. So they bought, m most of their LTE spectrum is tied up in, in this AWS 3 frequency, and AWS 3 is contiguous to AWS 1, and, and what that means is that um, it, it basically sits on the same, it sits next to AWS 1 uh, spectrum, which Wind currently uses for its 3G network. But the problem is that no phones actually support AWS 3 right now because it's a very new standard. So even if Wind were tomorrow, you know, to roll out their their LTE network, your phone won't be able to connect to it. So there's no point. Okay. So they're waiting. I mean, they they have to hit critical mass. Uh, Qualcomm has to come out with a new baseband chip that supports AWS 3. Companies like Samsung, LG, they have to put that baseband in their new phones roll those phones out, partner with Wind to provision them properly, and then Wind has to actually launch the service. So it's all going to take at least six to eight more months just to get those, um, just to get that handset market saturated enough so that they can say, hey, we have, you know, X number of phones that support our new LTE network. But Wind is in a good position to make that happen though, right? Well, they're in a whole lot of a, they're, they're in a way better position than they were two years ago. They have a new uh, CEO who um, used to work at Bell. He was the president of, of Bell Mobility for a while before he went over to, to run Public Mobile, which he then sold to TELUS before taking some time off and taking over Anthony Lazaridis, or Anthony Lacavera's role. Um, I got Lazaridis and Lacavera mixed up, as I do every <laughs> single time. Um, should we talk about BlackBerry? <laughs> we can. <laughs> um, Want to switch so, to BlackBerry? No, not at all. So uh, yeah, so Wins Wins in a good position, and uh, that's uh, we'll, we'll leave it at that because I think uh, they they need to prove themselves a lot more before before we can talk about them with any sort of substance. 
Um, so, actually, I, I do. I, I am. I am curious, Matt. What do you think of the Priv? Oh man. Um... If you've watched my review, then not good things. Um, I have watched your review, but maybe <laughs> maybe some of our, our many thousands of listeners have not. Right. So, I mean, I got a chance to review the Black Wave print. Um, I was really excited to review it. Um, it was one of those, you know, me, us being Canadian, being a Canadian company, there's a lot of nostalgia there. So, anyways, long story short, um, hold on a second, my pot filter fell off. But anyways, I wasn't impressed. Um, I felt the phone was poorly made. Um, yes, it did have a physical keyboard, which is appealing to that older generation, but most of us obviously don't care about that anymore. And the keyboard itself wasn't a typical BlackBerry keyboard. It felt cramped, it was small, it was kind of hard to type on. And even the software experience, which has been updated, and I haven't had a chance to test it, but previous to that update, it was laggy, there was a lot of stutters, and for a $700 US or $900 Canadian phone, I, I just really couldn't see the value over other phones that are currently on the market, such as the Nexus 6P and the Galaxies and stuff like that. If they market this phone for four to $500, and I think it'd be a great buy, but not for the price they're asking. So it's the price mostly that is uh, a factor for you, the, the 900 Canadian dollar price. Well, I mean, it's, I mean, everything is expensive here in Canada now because of the dollar, but it's, it's mostly the, the quality of the phone. Um, for the price they're asking, so it's 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 the whole package basically. I mean, the the AMOLED panel feels like an AMOLED panel from last year. Uh, the camera software is slow. Uh, the pictures are average, and um, yeah, I don't know. I just wasn't I just wasn't impressed. Maybe maybe I overhyped myself for it. I don't know, but yeah, I guess it's it's a matter of there are you know it's a good phone, but there are better ones out there that easily overshadow it. And unless right. you're out there, and I've said this before, unless you're really kind of uh, in it for the keyboard and to some extent the security, but I'm going to continue my rant about how I really don't think that it's that much more secure than the average Nexus or any other phone running Marshmallow. It's not. It's 100% not, unless you can have the latest version of Android and all the security updates and continuously get them on time, then it's hard to say that your phone is more secure. I don't care how encrypted it is. Well, there you go. So that being said, um, the new uh, the update that was released a couple of days ago uh, did fix a couple of the issues that you brought up. The, f the, the camera software in particular is a lot faster, so I'm, I'm happy with that. There is the new December security update from Google that only the Nexus 5X and 6P have right now, other than um, other than the Priv. And uh, a, a couple of the kind of more bumbling slowdowns, the ones that just make no sense, those have, from my limited time playing with the new update, seems to be fixed. Good. But I, I don't want to put the cart before the horse. I really haven't spent a lot of time with the update. So um, mm -hmm. once they're... Once they fix a bunch of the other issues with the with the apps that they promised to on December fourteenth, then then we'll take another look at yeah. it. One thing's for sure, I am going to revisit the phone in like six months because I want to give it another chance. Um, this is their first Android phone, so it is new for the company. So I definitely want to revisit and see what's been fixed over the next little while. Yeah, but you 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 have a you have incentive to do that because your six months later phones are like the most popular videos on your channel. Yeah, that's, that's true. 
Yeah, it's true. They do love. I mean, you have to remember, not everybody wants the latest phone. Um, usually, six months later, eight months later, prices come down, and usually, a lot of people are aiming for that type of type of uh, price point. So they appreciate uh, tech reviewers when they start reviewing older products because most time they don't, right? It's just the new stuff and then move on. Sometimes reviews change after six months too. Like people have a new perspective on a device after updates and things like that drop. So yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, Pat, Pat and I have talked about this um, offline a few times, how you know it doesn't really benefit people uh, other than early adopters to you know read reviews right when the phone or tablet or whatever comes out, because these days more than ever, the, the companies are under such a time crunch to release their hardware that often the software hasn't caught up and they haven't exactly. optimized the software enough. And you know we've, we saw this with the Apple TV, um, Apple released a, a big update for the Apple TV uh, along with iOS 9.2 this week, and it brought things that we expected from the set-top box when it was released in, uh, when was it, October or no- early November. Yeah, early November. Um, and, you know, the, the, the main complaint for people was that Siri didn't work with a- Apple Music, which now it does, but also that the remote app that we loved with the previous Apple TV versions wasn't updated to work with it. So that terrible text input was the only way that you could type your long Apple password, which for some reason Apple makes you enter every 10 minutes. So frustrating to try to write anything with the Siri remote. It's insanely inaccurate for that kind of thing. It's weird. It's, It's weird that that seems like such a regression. Um, but we're digressing, as usual. Oh, yeah, I never uh, use the Apple TV. You can't use your phone to type in, type in anything? You can now. Okay. You can now, yeah. Yeah, okay. just as, as of yesterday. Um, but l- let's let's transition to the, the feature. We've just hit about 30 minutes, so that's a good time to talk uh, about what you know the main event. Um, and and I, I, I wanted to convene this, this small panel of, of experts because <clears throat> I was completely blown away by something that Matt did uh, last week and uh, if you haven't seen it we'll, we'll we'll put a link to it in the in, in the show notes but uh, Matt why don't you explain uh, what what you did and uh, where where that idea came from sure um, it was wasn't my idea it was another youtuber named Ash Taylor he came to me and asked to try something that he discovered on how to sort of manipulate YouTube and create a 360 video. Now, obviously, he's from the UK, and I'm here in Canada, so it's you can't really do a 360 video unless you're in the same in the same place. So he had an idea to stitch three feeds together and still use the 360 experience to give the whole 360 view. So um, you know, we recorded our parts, we got the transition and the timing right, and and put it together. Now. Obviously, from a text perspective, doing a review, doing a tech review using 360 will confuse a lot of people, and it's not really the best way to do it. But from a virtual reality and the future of of making new types of videos, there's a lot of a lot of uh, things that you could do with it. Um, and we wanted to try it. Um, and based on the comments, a lot of people loved it. And there were a lot of people that said, "Don't ever do this again, please," because <laughs> it's hard to follow. There's three screens to watch. But I think like where it's going to be useful is when you're actually, let's say, for instance, have an actual 360 camera and, you know, you put it in front of a band and you can see the actual audience experience and watch the band at the same time. It's a lot more immersive than just 
you know, doing a tech review and showing a product. But so um, for people who haven't seen it or, or who are listening through uh, their headphones, give us a sense of, of what the video is like. Uh, you know, I have my smartphone. I go to YouTube. I, I tap on, um, ne you know, Nexus 6P VR 360 experience. What, am, what do I see when I, when I start it up? Okay, so if you are going to view this video, don't do it on the desktop because if you do it on the desktop, you have to click these little arrows and you'll just get frustrated and probably throw your computer off the desk. The best way to do it is obviously with the, the cardboard, which is, for those of you who don't know, is a very, very cheap way of getting introduced to virtual reality. And all you do is you place it over your eyes, you put your smartphone in it, and you just look around. And as soon as you start looking around, it's like being in a... I don't know, in a sphere or a dome, and you can see everything around you. Now, not, now because you don't have a 360 camera, you're only going to see a lot of black space and then three separate feeds, so you can kind of see exactly what's going on. Um, but like I said before, it's, it's something you experience once. If you were to watch it all the time, you'd probably get fed up with it, just based on the type of video we did, but there's obviously a lot of potential. So when I saw it, I was absolutely blown away because I loved the idea of marrying kind of a, a traditional tech review with, with something a bit more narrative. So you and Ash Taylor, you have a great rapport and you know you you have you have these little kind of quirks that you added to the video. You you communicate, you point to different parts of the screen. Um, you know, there's there's two feeds on either side, one of you in your uh, your studio narrating. There's one of him and his studio narrating, and then in the center is the actual phone review portion, I guess. Uh, um, and what I found so interesting was not necessarily the moments where you were narrating, but when I wasn't, when I was looking at the wrong person. <laughs> you know that the 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 parts that were obviously you anticipating people not always looking at the at the main screens that I found so interesting. Yeah, I mean, it gives you that sense of, like, what am I missing if I don't look at the other person? And I'm probably going to have to watch this again to see what the other person's doing because there's no way I'm going to be able to keep up. So there's a lot of excitement between that. And if we had just done, let's say, a 360 video of him talking and then it was my turn and then it was his turn, I think it wouldn't really display or show what 360 is about. Pat, what do you think? I mean, you've, you're, you have a, a cardboard. You actually did a piece on cardboard before you were a staff member at Mobile Syrup. You did a, a long piece on, on the potential for cardboard and, and its various apps. Um, I think it was earlier this year or maybe last year. It was a couple of months ago. Yeah. Um, and, and what I found really interesting from you know what you'd taken from it was how versatile it is and how much potential kind you know types of content you can experience through cardboard. Um, you know what what do you think these kinds of 360 videos add, especially since YouTube is pushing it so hard alongside its cardboard? Well, I I, I watched Matt's review. I thought it was awesome. As someone who like watches a lot of YouTube video editorial content as well as reads a lot of reviews. It's incredibly cool to see, um, I guess the best way to say it is, is a new way of doing that, like the back and forth was awesome. But what I think VR, and especially like cardboard, because it's so 
um, like it's I think it's fourteen fifteen dollars something like that. It sort of it acts as a, a gateway VR device. So someone I guess the idea is someone picks up that they try out a couple demos they understand what VR is all about and hopefully get that gets them interested in some of the the like more advanced VR headsets that are coming out um, over the course of the next couple of months. But that's like uh, one of the coolest things about it I think with VR is that you really need to try it before understanding it. Because before I tried Google Cardboard and Oculus and PlayStation VR and all of them, I was, um, I, I wouldn't say I was against the idea of VR, but I, I just didn't really get it, you know what I mean? Mm. And after trying uh, Cardboard, it started to make sense to me, and it, it creates this immersive spirit experience and closes you off from the rest of the world. And I've, I've played a ton of video games in, in, in like over the course of my career, so it's cool to sort of have that experience closed in like that. Yeah, that... Sorry, go ahead, Matt. I was just going to say, like, um, no, yeah, I agree with what Patrick's saying, and it's, it's like, you know, we're not in... We're still in the infancy of VR. Like, I mean, VR's been around for a while, but we're, we're in the infancy of what VR is about to become, like this big thing, or hopefully this big thing. And everyone's obviously saying it's the next big thing. But, um, for example, the New York Times, they actually put cardboard in their newspaper and sent it out to all their readers. And the feedback that they got was, you know, these people were really happy with the experience because they never done anything like, like this before. They were able to see a story in virtual reality. And even for students, you know, Google is sending out cardboard to all these students. They can visit Egypt. They can look at the pyramids. They can all do this together as a class and see some of these historical artifacts and, and places and time. So there's a ton of things that has the potential to become. And I mean, Google has been the progenitor of, of a lot of these low-cost VR solutions. They've released uh, a, v, a 360 uh, photo app for iOS and Android. Yeah. Um, and, and that is a really easy way to get into 360. Um, they you know, they, they were one of the earliest experimenters using Photosphere, uh, you know, so uh, the, back in the day, uh, they, you know, you could create a Photosphere by stitching photos together and, and they'd use um, algorithms to, to try to make those, those very immersive photos as seamlessly um, attached as possible. But what was amazing to me was that once you got a cardboard, those photospheres became immediately more interesting. Maybe we should, yeah, no, for sure. And I think what we should probably do is kind of, for anybody that hasn't uh, used cardboard or any of the other products that are currently on the market, maybe we should kind of describe the way it looks. Because I think um, for a lot of people, they just kind of imagine, like, they have this headset on, they can see 360 degrees, they can see their hands moving and stuff like that, but it's really not like that right now. And maybe we should talk about how, you know, the limitations of it today and where it might be five or six years down the road. Yeah, Pat, you've you've dealt with uh, a lot of these. So when when you put on a pair of card, I mean, cardboard is is a, is exactly what it sounds. It's a piece yeah. of cardboard folded together with a couple of plastic lenses. That uh, when you insert your smartphone, um, you're basically looking at your smartphone screen, but it's broken into two separate sections so that your eyes are tricked into seeing two images, and because the lenses are tuned in such a way that you can see it in sort of a three 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. 3D Realm. I mean, one of the one of the limitations is the fact that uh, the head tracking with cardboard is reliant on what phone you're using. So if the accelerometer in that phone isn't that accurate, you're going to get a lot of delay when you're moving around. And the fact that like you can't you can't hook the controller up to it, there's no way to interact with what's going on on in the screen other than um, like moving your head and staring at an object for a given period of time. That's how most Google Cardboard games and even um, some of Google's more like uh, like Earth Experience apps and stuff like that. That's how they work, like to move around and things like that. Um, so that's one of the major limitations of cardboard. But just the simple fact that, like you were saying, that it's it's literally a piece of cardboard is kind of kind of amazing. It's a piece of cardboard with some lenses that is folded into this headset, and you can slide any Android device in it that is able to support cardboard apps, and it gives you this gateway into to VR that otherwise probably would be financially out of reach for a lot of people. And and to mention that. Uh... Cardboard was updated for iOS too. Oh, that's true. So, um, and one of the one of the coolest experiments with um, 360 degree um, content was with Spotlight Stories, and that was a feature from Motorola's uh, you know experimental lab that was subsequently bought by Google, and when Google sold Motorola to um, to uh, to Lenovo, they they held on to it. So Spotlight Stories is a way for content creators to to experiment with sort of not not so much linear narrative storytelling, but very sort of choose your own adventure type stuff. And and some of it you interact with the screen, some of it you kind of just move your head, and your your tracking will you know manipulate actions on on the screen um, there there are a couple of incredible examples of really simple really beautiful stories on um, on this platform and if you haven't tried it, uh, it it's it's quite it's quite amazing yeah and I, and I just want to add to Patrick's limitations too um, the story feature is obviously going to be something that's huge and the reason I want to mention this is because one thing that's probably holding it back at least right now is one is that the graphics are not there yet. So even though our phones have these, like I don't recommend using an iPhone for this. I recommend using an Android phone because you know a lot of them now have um, QHD screens and the graphics because of that will be a little bit better, but it's still very pixelated. And as much as people don't want to have 4K smartphones, um, there's a reason why we need them. And I'm not even saying 4K, I'm saying 8K. And I don't think the graphics will be as good until there's 8K smartphones. And that's when everything will be kind of crystal clear. Obviously, that's a long way out. Um, but it'd be really cool to watch a movie in, like, perfect video quality in, you know, using your, head, using your, your headset, whether it's a cardboard or Gear VR or any of these products. 
And I think that's why um, there's like three different steps we're at right now. We're at Cardboard, which is like the cheap way to get in. Then there's Gear VR, which is where you can use your Samsung Galaxy device a little bit better. And then we have these three companies, Sony, um, Oculus, and HTC, putting out these headsets that require a lot of computing power behind it. And I mean, there are, are other companies, you know, experimenting with with VR, and it's just a matter of time before they, um, you know, they release their their products to the market. Um, what, what's what's fascinating to me is that no one other than Samsung has made a commercially available VR headset yet. You know, it's and and Pat, we uh, we've looked at this product a few times. The Gear VR, which you know is unfortunately only optimized for the latest generation yeah. Samsung products, is probably the most mature VR product out there today that does try to solve some of those input problems because you know without a, a controller, and we've seen controllers from companies like Oculus and and HTC um, and, and and Valve. Um, you know, Samsung's tried to make input as seamless as possible without forcing people to buy an external controller. Yeah, and there's some cool experiences available for gear already. Like Matt was talking about watching movies. There's like a, a Netflix theater app where you're actually physically in a kind of a, a virtual reality theater and you sit down and watch stuff. And like the, the team behind Monument Valley released a pretty expansive game. Um, I think it's called Land's End, that, that is probably one of the better VR experiences out there. Even though Gear VR is kind of in its infancy, there's already some cool applications out there, despite the fact that it only works with Samsung devices. And to me, that's really fascinating, because Samsung is leveraging its, um, its early entry into the market as a way to attract developers to its to its app store in a way that never worked on Android, right? Android for, you know, the Galaxy apps store on the Samsung, on Samsung phones is, is basically deserted because why would a developer, when they have access to every Android phone out there, give Samsung an exclusive um, experience, right? But with Gear VR, it's been this Trojan horse into exclusive content deals. And that may not stay very long. Samsung has, you know, probably, you know, only a short time before um, before this happens. But because of its deal with Oculus, and because Oculus Rift isn't a commercially available product yet, Samsung is sitting pretty here, right? Because a lot of these companies are developing, um, you know, smartphone apps for Samsung VR, with the knowledge that down the road it will be available on the Oculus Store for you know anybody who doesn't want to invest in in, in the the mobile version. Yeah, that, yeah, that's that's one of the reasons why the store has been doing so well, even though that it likely has a pretty small install base. Like Land's End is already out on the the Gear VR, and it's coming to Oculus later. So if you have a game that's ready to go, and the Oculus commercial Oculus Rift commercial version isn't out yet. And doesn't have a solid release date. It's just sometime in early 2016 it might get pushed back. That's what some of the speculation sort of indicates at this point. You might as well put your game out. Put it out on Gear VR and uh, see how it does. 
Yeah, and the Gear VR is the most affordable. Like, I mean, if you want an Oculus headset or an HTC um, the Vive, like, you have to have a high-end PC for it, and then you have to buy the product. Like, this is totally reachable by the consumer. And it looks ridiculous, right, when you wear when you wear this thing. But, um, you know, in reality, it's it's because nobody knows, you know, no, nobody knows what you're watching, first of all. But wearing something like the Gear VR out in public is is just asking for people to stare. But if we were all looking, you know, down at our smartphones, immersed in some, you know, game like Candy Crush or whatever crappy free-to-play game, you know, people are playing these days, ten years ago, they would have looked at us the same way. It's just that we're wearing this ridiculous covering on our face. If I wear a VR headset in tra- in outside, I will end up in traffic dead. Well, that's the other <laughs> thing, right? Um, it's, no, a, going. it's a very personal experience. It is. But it's also something that you want to share with people. So, yeah. you know, how do you, how do you, um, how do you come to terms with that? How, how do you figure that problem out? Well, it's going to be the same way as like playing like a you know a multiplayer game. Like you need to be able to connect with each other. Let's say sit in the same virtual theater with each other and watch a movie. You know, or you know be in a new game world together and start shooting aliens. Like I think that's how you're gonna. There's be no physical connection that will kind of you know obviously get removed. And I think um, a lot of people will still prefer that in a lot of ways. But at least you can quickly still have a connection in your virtual world. There's some cool possibilities, too, with just strictly communication, like just being able to talk to someone via VR um, in a way that's much more personal because you they're, like, literally right in front of you when you're looking for a VR headset. I think that's something that we're likely going to see at some point in the future. Future, I don't, I don't think we're there yet, but that's something that's probably going to be happening. So just to uh, explain the difference, the Gear VR... Uh, which is is a piece of hardware built by Samsung, and it's optimized for Samsung uh, smartphones, but it is what they call Oculus-powered, which means that the platform and the ecosystem are curated by Oculus. Oculus had uh, input in the design, and generally the two companies are working together on this, but Samsung still creates the hardware, whereas the Oculus Rift... Is um, is a, is actually just a, a headset with uh, with with a screen and headphones integrated that needs to be connected to a PC. So, um, Pat, can you explain a little bit more about that? Yeah, there's the there's the Oculus Rift. Um, there's there's three high end headsets that are going to be coming out at some point in early 2016. There's the Oculus Rift, um, which, like you described, it, it it's like a screen. And a headset, they're really they're kind of hard to, to visualize, um, and and you put it on your face. And and then there's the HTC Vive, which looks very similar but features a little more advanced uh, tracking. It actually has two cameras mounted on it. It tracks the location of your body, so you're able to move around a, a small room. You can actually set the size the size of the room, and a lot of the experiences that HTC has showed off um, so far sort of allow you to move around in that virtual space. And then there's PlayStation VR, which is um, probably going to be the more uh, mass consumer-friendly device because rather than having to own a high-end PC, 
you only need to own a PlayStation, uh, a PlayStation 4, and it hooks directly into that. And it's the same as the Vive and the same as the Oculus, where it's a headset that you attach to your face, um, and it runs off the PlayStation 4. But along with the fact that it works with the PlayStation 4 is the fact that it, it's probably going to be pretty limited. Like, in my experience using it, um, like Matt sort of alluded to this earlier, there was a lot of resolution problems with it. Like, everything looks incredibly blurry and pixelated when you're using the PlayStation VR. Um, but yeah, there's there's those three major devices that are coming out. And I, I think part of the partnership between uh, Oculus with the with the Gear VR and, and the Oculus Rift is the fact that Oculus sees the Gear VR as sort of this gateway thing. Like, they're hoping that people pick it up. Um, they try it out. They, they really like the idea of VR. And then maybe a couple months later, they end up picking up the Rift. So, do you think down the road, the Gear VR or sorry, the Oculus Rift or or you know its successor, is going to replace people's say consoles or televisions, or do you think it's sort of like a smartwatch or another accessory where it's going to augment people's experiences with their with their current uh, you know hardware, whether it's a PC or a um, or a laptop, or a smartphone, or or something else. Do you see it? Do you see them down the road, sort of existing on their own, or still being very much reliant on on the you know auxiliary uh, hardware? I think for the foreseeable future, they're definitely going to be reliant on auxiliary hardware. Um, I know there's been rumors that Oculus is working on something like a successor to the Rift. They're they're exper- experimenting with technology that makes it more of a standalone pro- uh, product. But I, I always, I, I think that that's like a ways off. Like we're talking like a decade or so. Like these devices are never going to replace our televisions or, or or traditional technology like that. They're always going to be kind of like, uh, like you said, like a smartwatch where it's, it's an awesome, interesting, cool piece of tech that maybe you use every once in a while and you, you show off to your friends because it's super cool and immersive. Um, but, but it's never going to overtake... Uh, the traditional forms of technology that we know today. Right. I have a feeling it's going to be kind of like <clears throat> the old beta, beta max and VHS. Like there's going to be a really high-powered, I mean not right now, later on in the future, a really high-powered version of it where only certain people are using it because it's expensive. And then there's a more consumer-friendly version which will probably sell in masses because it's cheaper and they can do the simple things a lot easier, like you know, like a whole Facebook virtual world yeah. or or watch adult entertainment, or like little things like that, right? Um, whereas, <laughs> I know I brought up adult entertainment my last, last time I was on Mobile Sierra, but again, this is another industry they're experimenting with it again, right? Yeah, I, I mean, it's 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 actually quite fascinating. I read a I, I read a long. I guess what's happening is, as with many new technologies, the porn industry has adopted um, VR and 360 degree cameras before a lot of. Uh, the other broadcasters, and and what they're doing is they're taking a, um, they're 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 taking a sort of aggressive approach to promoting themselves as, um, as a viable business. So you know the porn industry has been disrupted obviously in so many ways, and it's not making nearly as much money anymore because people get, you know, porn on the internet uh, for free, and the way that they can convince people to buy. Um, or subscribe to uh, new, you know, adult content is by utilizing these platforms that haven't been as 
flattened. Hold right? on, do you get porn for free? Uh, where, where do I go for this, Danny? <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk after the show. Um, and and I, I think that's really interesting, and they've reached out to a lot of journalists to go tour their uh, production facilities where they're using these 360-degree cameras that are very new and very expensive. And in some ways, it's, you know, it's, it's one of those, um, for many people who, you know, may want to not, you know, may not want to admit it, it's going to be one of the first things they try when they buy their new Oculus Rift or, or Gear VR or, you know, whatever, whatever platform they, they want to use it with. Um, but Pat, I, I'm, I'm interested in, you know, like PlayStation and Xbox, it seems like there are, like right now, there are four or five companies that are trying to carve out a VR slash AR um, position in the market. And like with the console system or the, the console ecosystem, it's, it's, it's worked out that there are mainly two, right? Nintendo exists with the Wii U, but ultimately the majority of the money is being made on PlayStation and Xbox. Do you think the same thing is going to happen in the VR space? I think at first there's going to be, like, I, the vibe's going to come out, um, and they're, they're all going to be released. Like, I, I don't think they're February, like a lot of people think, that the vibe's never going to happen. I think it's going to come out. I don't see all this work going into it and all these demos happening. Like I've played almost complete games on the Vive, so I can I, I think it's going to come out. But um, more to your question, I think that for the first little bit, all of these devices are going to be around. But looking into the future, like five years, it's going to become a more narrowed experience. And what is going to dictate which devices are successful is the same as sort of how uh, how the gaming industry decides what consoles. Are, are successful. Whichever one has the best software is the one that's going to do the best. So if the Vive ends up with, with that like killer game that everyone wants to play or that, that killer um, VR experience that everyone wants to, to, to like get a hold of, that's the one that's going to win. Um, from like just sitting back from and seeing like where, where the VR industry is headed, it looks like it's probably going to be Oculus just because it's been around for the longest. Uh, there's more games coming out for it than any of the other platforms, but it's, it, it still remains to be seen like who's, who's going to end up being victorious. But there's also going to be space for, for a variety of them. Like, who knows, maybe they all could end up being around for a really long, long time. So the, um, the CEO of Oculus is uh, a guy named Palmer Lucky, and uh, he, he, he launched the... The, the first gen system on Kickstarter a long time ago. Um, it was like 2013 or 2012. Um, and, and it was subsequently purchased by uh, Facebook for about $2 billion. Um, but like, like with Instagram and WhatsApp, it seems like Facebook's largely left them alone to do their own thing. Um, but Clearly, the company has intentions for Oculus, right? It's not like they're just they're going to leave it be forever, right? Mm -hmm. Facebook's got these broader platform uh, goals, but besides gaming, where and and entertainment in general, where do you think VR has a potential to disrupt um, 
you know, in, in other industries? Media for sure. okay. Good. I was just going to say media for sure. Like imagine being at a press conference that you don't have to fly a thousand kilometers to, right? I think I think like just communication too. Like uh, I'm sure that's what Facebook has in mind. Something to do with just talking to someone one on one through VR because it's a more it's a more personal experience. Um, it's almost like the person sitting right beside you. I imagine it would be. Um, but who knows when that's going to happen? But like Facebook didn't buy Oculus with with gaming in mind. I think they're going to to leave it um, to focus on gaming. But I also think that it's going to have uh, a lot of communication potential as well at some point in the future. And the other thing that that comes to mind is live sports. You know, for me, um, you know, I don't I don't have a cable subscription, so all of my live sports is streamed on a tablet or a smartphone, and that experience is just it's it's subpar, right? You know, I can I can have the biggest tablet as I I can with headphones that boom the sound, but ultimately I never quite feel like I'm there. But really, with live sports, you know, if you're if you have a 360 degree camera on the field or right next to the field, positioned in any number of ways, you know, say a basketball court or a football field or a tennis match, you know, that to me screams virtual reality. It screams um, disruption, and it also will allow companies like MLB, the NBA, NFL to charge a premium for that experience because if I'm Mr. you know consumer who is reticent to um, reticent to really spend money on on my cable or at least I don't want to spend a lot of money on my cable but I, I want to catch up on on sports this would be a way to justify spending two hundred three hundred dollars a year on an NBA you know league pass or or the equivalent from MLB or, or NFL I don't think that's that far off. Like I can see something like NHL Game Center or one of the dedicated apps where you pay like a couple hundred bucks a year for um, access to like every game ever. I, like I think that's going to happen within the next couple of years. There's there's too much money to be made from it and too much opportunity to sort of grab those users that, that probably don't have a, a traditional cable subscription um, to, to ignore it. Yeah, and, and Rogers is already doing that with its... Uh... It's Game Center Live. They have, for Rogers customers, they have multiple angles for their for their hockey broadcast, right? Ones yeah. that aren't televised. And you know, as interesting as that is, it's more like the special features or a bonus, you know, the bonus material on a on a DVD. It's not really a prime. Um, it's it's not really considered prime content. But if you're able to choose any angle you want when you're Sitting down on your couch, you know, with your VR headset, I think that could be that could turn from, you know, a secondary or tertiary selling feature into a primary one. Well, something that is the technology there though. Like, can can they do that live? Do you, do you know if that's possible? I don't, and I'm I, I assume that it's bandwidth dependent. I yeah. I think that you know if Rogers for its you know for for its uh, um to its credit, has really been pushing high-speed internet um, and its, uh, you know, higher-quality 4K cable bundles because it wants to get ahead of, of the 4K revolution. Yeah. But they spent a ton of money on NHL. They spent 
$5.2 billion to license NHL over 12 years. And if they miss the boat with uh, with VR, which I, I don't think they will, then it will be a missed opportunity. But um, I think it comes down to bandwidth, and it also comes down to the cameras. Because at this point, from what I believe, the uh, VR cameras are quite cumbersome. They're like I IMAX cameras. They are considerably heavier. They're more difficult to maneuver. Um, but they also don't need to be moved, right? Because they are taking 360-degree footage. There's one thing I want to say. I want to play devil's advocate here. So even if these things do happen, like we can be able to watch sports or be at the opera or whatever it is, like how are you going to experience? You can't really sit on your couch and just do a 360-degree view. Like you need like a swivel chair or yeah. or something along those lines. And then like how long are you going to sit there swiveling? Like after like five, ten minutes, you're going to get tired. So it's really hard to watch a whole sports game over an hour in VR. So I don't know. But you have to think about that too, right? Yeah, you're you're right. I, I mean, Pat, you you have a lot of experience with these with, with the current state of VR. Um, you know, how are these companies getting around this idea of of presence? You know, that you you can't like I know HTC supports some spatial uh, room recognition, but uh, Oculus, you you basically need to be sitting down, right? Yeah, yeah Oculus, it, it's one of the high end ones, and you even need to be. Like you have to be sitting down, and the only way that you're able to look around is, is is moving your actual head, right? So there's no sort of uh, way for the device to detect where you are in the actual room, and it's the same thing with Google Cardboard um, and and the gear as well. Like you you almost have to sit in a computer swivel chair to be able to do anything with uh, either the gear or the Oculus or or Google Cardboard because that's how you're able to look around and, and see what you're doing. If you're not, you're kind of just like shuffling around the couch all the time, trying to, to get that angle of whatever you're looking at, which isn't exactly ideal. Right. Yeah, and um, you know, I, I tried the Vive, and I thought it was absolutely crazy. Um, they set me up in a room, and as you mentioned, they can set artificial they can set sort of virtual barriers for a physical room so that if you're approaching a, a wall, a blue mesh will come over your eyes to tell you that you're about to hit something. And the way they do that is they have four cameras positioned in each corner of the room that are constantly updating the Vive headset with spatial information. So your headset is hooked up to a computer and it knows where you are in relation to the um, to the, the virtually generated uh, dimensions of the room through these inf infrared cameras. They're 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 physical um, visual cameras, but they also have infrared sensors that are constantly scanning the room. They're like they're I think uh, the HTC rep said that they're they're lasers. Yeah. Um, they're laser based. So I think it's really interesting that that's how they're getting around the problem of um, spatial resolution, but at the same time, it's only limited, it's limited to 15 by 15, right? So if you are in a world, I mean, you know, pretend that you're playing The Legend of Zelda Oculus Edition, you know, in my fantasy, I, 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 I think of Nintendo creating games for consoles that are more powerful than theirs. In an alternate reality. Yeah, and, and you know, in this alternate reality, uh, you know, the Legend of Zelda Oculus Edition requires you to move 
physically through the world. But if you're in a 15 by 15 box and you need to get to the other end of Hyrule, how are you going to do that? And how do yeah. they, um, how do they emulate the feeling of movement? While you know, how do they how do they emulate the feeling of scale in that uh, in in those dimensions? I mean, that's one of the things that's going to be cool to see how developers try to solve those problems. Because uh, I like I honestly have no idea how they're going to be able to solve that issue. Because most people are going to be playing in their living room, right? They're not going to have a giant garage or this this huge area to to play in. And there's going to be objects in the way too. Like, how is all that going to work? Like the the vibe was. Amazing! It's one of the coolest experiences that I've had um, in terms of gaming. But it was in this controlled environment, this this somewhat well lit room where there was nothing around, and it worked perfectly. Is that going to be the same situation when you when we get our hands on it and set it up in, in like an office or or a living room where there's more, um, I guess, variables that can ruin the experience? Right. And you know, just as the, you know, early first person shooters didn't really have that sense of movement and scale uh, even if you know even when we were using controllers you know with the Vive if you're or, or the Oculus with its touch controls if you're moving through a large world you can physically move a few uh, you know a, a little bit to your left or strafe mm -hmm. to your left or right or move up and down but you're still gonna have to use a controller to to move forward in large uh, in larger areas right um, and uh, I, I just, this is one of those really tough um, problems to solve, both both from an uh, engineering perspective, but also from a psychological perspective, right? Because you don't want to be taken out of the experience by having, say, the floor disappear underneath you and reappear in another location. You want to have this feeling that you've moved physically through that world. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how it all plays out. I mean, there, there's, there's been some VR games that have been announced, but we haven't seen like full-fledged experience. Everything experiences, everything that I've played, would amount. I guess you would consider them more like elaborate tech demos, right? Like they're not, they're not a full game. It's this, this sort of proof of concept thing that shows off how the, how the Vive's controllers are going to work, or, or, or even how that the, the technology that you described, where you can walk up to, to the wall and the Vive knows where you're standing. And, and it's the same case with the Oculus Touch controllers. Like, they want to show people how this stuff works, but there hasn't been any real games built for them yet. Right. Yeah. Um, go ahead, Matt. No, I just said yeah. No. <laughs> I need I just... you to contribute more. Um, so what, what else? I mean, we haven't really spoken about uh, augmented reality, uh, but clearly, there are big players in that space. One of whom is uh, Microsoft with the Hololens. Um, you know, what do you guys think of of the Hololens as a as a product, and you know how it's trying to solve a, a completely different set of problems by overlaying, um, you know, content on top of your 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 existing world, and 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 where Microsoft thinks that will go. Um, I think it's I think it's I think it's something that's going to take a little bit longer than VR. I mean, in terms of to be um, mainstream, only because <clears throat> it's really expensive to do still, and the stuff that they can do is still very gimmicky. Even though you know, like I haven't used the Hololens. I'm obviously basing this off of what I've seen from their demos and stuff. You're not wrong. Okay, good. So anyway, it has the potential to do 
like especially in the corporate world, amazing things. Like you can have conference calls while you're walking, you can manipulate objects, you know, you can play Minecraft, so on and so forth. Um, but I just think we're way I think there's just a long, long, long ways to go for AR, and I think VR is the first step to get there. Yeah. Wasn't wasn't Microsoft quoted as saying that it's not coming out for like five, six years or something like that? I think so. And yeah. what? Did, yeah. And I'm not sure. I, I think I, I might be wrong on this, but I think eventually get at least developers kit for the HoloLens can cost like three thousand dollars. Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. it was even more than that. Yeah. Something yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. So I mean, we're still way in the beginning for that. So specifically, it's going to be shipping uh, in the first quarter of next year uh, for three thousand U.S. dollars, even though it's shipping to Canada. Sure. So three thousand U.S. dollars is about four four and a bit thousand Canadian. So not a toy. Certainly, uh, this is only for developers who really think that they can delve into it. And there isn't any commercial. Re- uh, th- there's no consumer. Uh, release date yet, but uh, Microsoft is clearly positioning this as a as a tool, not necessarily a uh, a gamer device like the Oculus and the Vive. You've tried the Hololens, though, right? I have tried it. I got uh, the chance to try an earlier version of the hardware earlier this year at Microsoft Build. Um, what people don't realize and what Microsoft had to see later on uh, is that the field of view is very narrow. So if we think of a, a, you know, a virtual reality headset, it's completely immersive. You can't see any part of the real world. Mm-hmm. Uh, but with an augmented reality headset, you also think of, okay, well, I'm wearing these goggles or glasses, and theoretically every part of my vision, every part of my field of view... Um, is is going to be accessible to this to this computer on my face, right? I can I'm, I should be able to mint, you know, if my peripheral vision can see, you know, 90 degrees that way, I should be able to see projected images from the screen 90 degrees that way. But in reality, at least the first generation Hololens is very narrow. It's only a small slit in front of your eyes, so you actually have to physically move your head around to keep things in the frame. And that's really limiting. And it, it wasn't a great uh, experience. It was an interesting experience. And I think that there's a lot of potential uh, because um, there's there's a lot of cool hardware in there. And I think with Microsoft combining Windows 10 development platforms to make it to make uh, HoloLens just a, a next logical step when they're developing, say, an Xbox game or a Windows uh, tool, that's really helpful, but I, I just think the hardware isn't there yet. That's interesting to hear. I mean, that that's anyone that I know that has tried it has been pretty negative about the experience. Hopefully, that's, that's something that changes. I wonder if it's just because it's the first the first generation, their first attempt at a working prototype that they can show off to people. Yeah, I think that's probably right. Um, what they are doing is they're they're really trying to accommodate all different kinds of industries here and and I really I, I like the fact that they're taking this in a different direction yeah. than Oculus and uh, Vive and I, I, I do think that they're gonna find success with it uh, especially since Windows has or Microsoft as a company has refactored itself so much as a software and services company but they're also making great hardware now so they have these they have these development tools and this this platform that is so robust um, but they're not 
they're not afraid to try new things, and and the Hololens is definitely a new thing. I, I mean, it, it amazed me when I was at the announcement in 2014. So it was really really neat. What are you guys more excited for in terms of like for the product becoming like completely, I don't know, commercialized VR or augmented reality? Like, what excites you more? Yeah, like, I don't know. The the rational side of me thinks that AR is going to be more practical, right? right? Like, you know, being able to, as, as you said, like have a conference call or do things that I normally would do just smarter and better uh, is exciting to me. But VR is a way of getting rid of my current world, right? I want to I want to escape. VR promises this this casual um, you know a sort of like a, a casual um, hallucination. And I really like that idea, you know, being able to go anywhere and do anything and actually feel scared or feel happy and and have it be a, a real feeling that's being manipulated by a computer. And I, I love that feeling when I'm in a movie or, you know, when I'm playing a really good game. And I think that that's only going to get easier when you're in VR. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely more excited for VR just because uh, gaming is, 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 like, one of my big interests, right? And I think there's more possibilities for cool gameplay experiences um, with VR. Like, there's definitely cool things you can do with augmented reality like that... Um, I think it was the Minecraft demo that you mentioned earlier, Matt. That looked like incredibly cool. There's a lot of different things that developers can do with that. But for me personally, what I'm excited about with VR is the fact that you're sort of you're sort of locked into the experience. Because I find as I'm getting older with gaming, like I'll start playing a game or something like that, um, and I'll get distracted. Like uh, I'll get distracted by the computer or the text, or I'll go on Twitter while I'm playing, and and I'll end up doing that more than actually playing the game. With VR, you sort of have blinders on, and that, that's all you're experiencing because it's so immersive and because all you're seeing is the game that's in front of you. And I think there's there's some cool opportunities for creating different kinds of games, but also even, like, stuff we talked about in the podcast, like, uh, like even communication. Like, I think that's going to be a very interesting way to connect with people, like, at the other, other, at the other side of the world. Yeah, that's yeah, uh, definitely the next step of voice and, and, and video communications for sure. Uh, so I, I think we're going to stop there. Um, we're, we're about uh, an hour and 15 minutes in, and I'm sure people want to listen to their to that serial episode that they haven't caught up on yet. Um, I just want to thank uh, my guest today, Matt Moniz. Thanks so much for joining us again. Thank you so much for having me, and Mobile Syrup will have a VR podcast in three years. Yes! <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> Uh, Pat, thanks so much for joining us. It's it's awesome. I, I'm going to get you on the pod more often. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. And uh, everybody, thank you so much for listening. Uh, if you have any feedback, please feel free to leave it for us. Um, at JourneyDan on Twitter, at MobileSyrup, MobileSyrup.com. Um, where can people find you, by the way, Matt? I, I know that uh, I, I forgot to ask you that. They can find me on Twitter at Matt Monas or on YouTube at MatthewMonas1. Right, because that bastard Matthew Mona has got the, the real URL. I know. <laughs> and Pat, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on Mobile Syrup, where you'll find all of my awesome mobile content. And you can also find me on Twitter at, at Patrick underscore Rourke. All right. That's it for this week. Thanks again for joining us, and we will see you again soon. Peace. See you later. Bye.